Hello, readers. Johnny Russo has been a lot of things in life, including an actor, singer, and a guy who spent part of his life working for the mob. He's best known for his role as Carlo in The Godfather, and he also has a book about his life. Hollywood Godfather, my life in the movies and the mob. Johnny, thank you for the time. How's it going today? Yes, sir. How you doing, buddy? Oh, doing great. Why was now the right time for you to come out with this book about your life story, Johnny? Well, I mean, if you read the whole book, the last sentence in the book is, yes, you can. And I'm 76 years of age, and I'm trying to encourage young people, even my own children, grandchildren, that if you have a dream, go out there, pursue it. You only get one chance at this. This is not a dress rehearsal. And uh, I think now, and then also I had, now that you read the book, I also had to wait for certain people to die to write about them. So it's, (laughs) there was a combination of times, but I think now is the, and I'm doing a podcast also to raise more awareness. And I, I post a new show, in fact, every Wednesday, today's a new show going up. But the thing is that I'm trying to raise enough money to give out more scholarships last year. With the AAIB, we gave out $10,000 scholarships to any city schools and students. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. So I want to do more of that each year and just have fun with it. I would imagine that a part of the reason why you want to lend yourself and lend your abilities to help kids who are less fortunate has at least a bit to do with your own childhood. You came from a background that was far from having a silver spoon in your mouth. What exactly was your childhood home like, Johnny? There really wasn't a home life. My father was a little insane, and he broke up the family a few times. And then I left at the age of seven. So that in itself, you know, because of uh, I got polio in 1949. Now, when you say you left home at seven with polio, what did that entail? Well, the, the, the disease was so highly contagious, they quarantined us. So they actually opened a wing in the state hospital here and was quarantined. Nobody can go in other than the nurses and doctors. So I didn't see my mother and father, which was confusing also because I was wondering why didn't they didn't even visit me. You know, I'm a seven-year-old kid. I'm an altar boy and doing what seven-year-old kids do. And I was very confused because I was wondering where are they. And I could have turned out so many ways other than the way I did. And uh, so I'm blessed. And you were at that state hospital for five years before you were able to eventually go back to your family and that included, for a part of the time, you being paralyzed from polio. How and why oh, yeah. did you take unassisted steps for the first time? Well, that was uh, contributed to Dolores Barone, who, when I got to the hospital, she was a candy striper. And when I left, she was an RN. So uh, I went through her career in progression, and uh, she came up with this new therapy. I don't know how we could uh, make it uh, in a medical term, other than say it's uh, breast therapy for the, for the inflicted. <laughs> she, she was making promises to let you see certain things if you could accomplish certain physical things for her, correct? That was my reward if I could get to walk and do what I did. And it took over about, about a year to 14 months 
but I almost ran over there finally. <laughs> <laughs> so you eventually did make it back home, but you realized because that situation was so broken, an abusive father who was in and out, a, a mother who unfortunately just kind of accepted the situation that you didn't want to stick around there for long. So would you mind explaining well, how a box of pens a rabbit's foot, and your atrophied arm, it was atrophied from polio, helped serve as your introduction to the mob. I've always done this all my life. I take lemons and make lemonade, and I, I took advantage of, like you pointed out, my left side of my body still had some res- res- residual of being pa- paralyzed. So I went to Delancey Street, which is a big uh, wholesale place downtown, and I bought ballpoint pens that just came out. So I bought these ball. I didn't buy them. I, I made a deal with Leo Rabinowitz where he'd lend me 50 pens. And then every morning I'd count them. If there was 20 missing, I'd pay him for the 20. And I'd go back uptown. And so I, when I went uptown, I, I, went, I took the 4 train and left me off at 59th Street and 5th Avenue, which is like the best end of, you know, the best part of New York City up east side. And I'm selling these pens in front of the Sherry Netherlands Hotel which is, you know, all high-class people. In fact, I actually had to ask the doorman because I knew it was Monday. And I said, is this Sunday or Monday? He said, it's Monday. Why? I said, everybody's dressed for church because in my neighborhood, they only dressed the way they dressed uptown on Sunday to go to Mass. (laughs) Normally, everybody wears work clothes, but up there, everybody was dressed to the nines with top coats and fedoras, which I've never seen before. And fortunately, uh, I had a big clientele. Women would buy these pens. And then there was this one gentleman that used to come by every day and give me a dollar, sometimes five dollars, and never take a pen. Every time he came by, he'd give me the money and then touch my left shoulder, which was still deformed. I found out coming out of church one day downtown. The store is still there, actually. It's next to Ferrara's Bakery Shop. So if any of your listeners ever go to Little Italy, the Catholic store is still there, the hundred-something-year-old store. And I noticed in the window, they had a Lagorn, the horns that a lot of Italians wear on their neck to avoid the evil spirits. But this one had a hunchback man on it. And I asked the owner, Joe, I said, Joe, what is that about? He said, well, the Sicilians touch a hunchback or a cripple for luck. They believe in that. So the next day, this guy who was coming by, who was a, a, a major mobster at the time, and I didn't know that until I got to know who he was, but uh, he went to touch me, and I moved away. He said, what are you doing? I said, don't touch me. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I know what you're doing. So at the train station, I saw a turquoise rabbit's foot. So I bought it. So when he went to touch me again, I said, you're touching me for luck. I thought you liked me, man. I'm no freak. And I handed them this little turquoise rabbit's foot. I said, if you need luck, rub this. And he looked at the guy who I thought was his friend, was his bodyguard. And he, he said, do you believe this kid? He said, you know who I am? I said, no, I don't care who you are. You ain't touching me no more. So he says, Blackie, take that cigar box. I said, he ain't taking nothing. He gave me five $100 bills. He said, from now on, you work for me as a messenger. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, you just do errands for me and all of that. I mean, $500, that's like just giving somebody 10000 today. Yeah. 
much less a kid. Yeah. You know, I was 13. So uh, with that said, I was with, with the, Mr. Frank Costello until 73, until he died. You uh, in one of his apartments right now. Is that right? You right, still live right in one of his second, apartments? Right now. Wow, that's crazy. My dining room sits 16. I got a nightclub with eight eight stool bar, five bedrooms. It's amazing. And, and the best part of town. For people who are unfamiliar, who exactly is Frank Costello and what did he mean to you? Well, Frank Costello was the head of the Genovese family, crime family, when Vito Genovese was in jail, which he never really wanted to own a family. He's smarter than that. And uh, he took the name Costello, so he didn't have an Italian name. His Christian name was obviously Italian. He was from Sicily, only to find out, which he knew and I didn't, my uncle, Angelo Russo, sent him to America with Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino, the other crime families in New York, to start what was called, well, they had only one family, and then they created the five families in New York. And then Maya Lansky and Frank Costello created what was known as the syndicate, which is the whole United States, including certain foreign countries, especially Italy. (laughs) Wow. And so you ended up working for Frank Costello. You are running errands for him. And eventually you get stopped by a truancy officer because you are, I believe, 14 or 15 at the time. Truancy officer grabs you. You think you're getting shaken down at first, but you realize it's just a truancy officer. And so Frank and others realize that they need to get you in school until you turn 16. And at that point, you are free to do what you please on the city streets. So they concoct a plan to have you register at the local beauty school as a shampoo boy. And that well, turned He in- did that for me, actually. He made all the arrangements because I didn't know what to do. They gave me a ticket to give my mother and father, and they said they had to answer this ticket in so many days, lest they're going to pick me up and throw me into juvie. I said, what's juvie? <laughs> I, had, I understand this. I'm talking to this, this cop-like guy. I had like $10,000 in betting receipts in my pocket. I was hoping they didn't shake me down because then I would have really had a problem. <laughs> so when I gave the ticket to Costello, he said, I'll, I'll straighten it out. And he, because part of my route was all the Upper East Side and the, and the West Side. And uh, so he got me into Wilford Academy, which was on top of Lindy's between 51st and 52nd Street in New York. So it was part of my route and I can go there. And uh, I didn't want to go to school at all until I got to the school. And there was 30 gorgeous girls every morning <laughs> learning how to do hairdressing. So it was like going to candy store every morning before I went to work. And I think the last month or so was you doing an internship at an actual salon. And it was an A-list salon that included a, a, lot, of, a lot of big-time movers and shakers. And that led to what has to be considered a legendary story involving Marilyn Monroe. How did you first meet her, and what happened the first time you met her at her Waldorf Astoria room? Well, it's funny because, you know, what what happened, I didn't meet her the first time in her Waldorf Astoria room. I met her, she was the fourth head of hair that I shampooed at Lily Dashay. And all of us listening know the configuration of a shampoo basin. So she was laying back in the shampoo basin, which the maid was very high-end place. You know, she put on a robe and they put her in a private booth for me to shampoo her hair. 
and I walk in there, and she's laying there, and I just watched her, you know, in, in uh, Some Like It Hot, I don't know how many times, <laughs> and now I'm looking at her, I don't even know how long I was looking at her, and she finally said, is there someone in the room? And I said, excuse me, because, I, I, I mean, I couldn't believe that's Marilyn Monroe laying here with a, with a robe on in front of me. <laughs> At, at going on 16. You can only imagine what was going on in my head. Mm-hmm. So now they give me a card saying, you know, her, the temperature of water, and I had to run the water and get it to that temperature, put it on her wrist for her to approve it. I mean, the whole protocol. So then I finally start washing her hair, and she likes a hard shampoo. And I'm shampooing her hair. She's moaning as if we're having an affair. And me, you know, being 16 or just about, I get an erection. Okay, she's laying down. I'm leaning over her. Well, I think I was poking her in the ear. Because then she started, she started requesting me. And then Costello one day says to me, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, whatever you want. He said, we have a guest in the hotel here. He said, I want you to keep an eye on her. And I go to the room, it's Marilyn Monroe. I couldn't believe it. So I thought I was supposed to shampoo her hair. And she had room service. I never knew what room service was. And champagne, I never had champagne in my life. And so I'm waiting, and she's in a robe already. And I said, when do you want me to wash your hair? So I don't want you to wash your hair. Just keep me company. And that was on a Saturday afternoon. And then she invited me to take a bath, which I cannot believe. And then I left on Monday morning. <laughs> I mean, you're a 16-year-old kid, and you were hooking up for the weekend with America's sweetheart, looked at by most at the time as the most beautiful woman in America. I couldn't even tell anybody. It wasn't two years <laughs> later, because I wouldn't tell anybody. They'd think I was lying anyway. So it was years later that I'm having a conversation with Marlon Brando on the set, and him and I got really close, and... Uh, we're talking. I don't know how we got the, the subject of Marilyn Monroe came up, but he, you know, was telling me his escapades, and I, I, I had a smirk on my face. And he says, uh, "What are you laughing at?" I said, "I'm not laughing at nothing." He said, "Come on, tell me what's going on in your head." I said, "Nothing." He said, "Don't tell me you were Marilyn Monroe." I said, well, "I would never tell anybody this, but you are." He's all right. If you were really with her. What's different about Marilyn Monroe that you would notice only if you were very intimate with her? And I knew she had a scar at the top of her left leg that almost ran into her stomach. I, I, I don't know what kind of scar it was. I never asked. But, and then he started laughing when I told him that because that's the only way you'd see that. You wouldn't see that anywhere else unless you were in the room with a nude. But... Um, which only only bonded Brandon's friendship more with me. <laughs> <laughs> you have this Gumpian-like existence, Johnny. It seems like you were around uh, a lot of historical moments, around a lot of uh, famous and, in some cases, infamous people as well. How were you potentially involved in the assassination of JFK? I was just a messenger, believe me, because I, I, I love JFK. I knew my Senator John F. Kennedy early on when he was spending a lot of weekends at the Sands Hotel in Vegas as the guest of Mr. Costello and everybody else that was involved with that, that property at the time. So I got to know him early on, and unbeknownst to me, his father, Joe Kennedy, who was partners with Frank Costello, 
during Prohibition, they, they amassed over $30 million together during that time. Well, Joe approached Costello asking him to get all his union friends and mob friends to back his son to become president. So Costello said, what's in it for us? He said, if my son becomes president, the first duties he will do is invade Cuba and give you all your casinos back. When Fidel, you know, invaded and threw Batista out, all that land that they owned was confiscated by him. So it was a great deal. So all I was doing was traveling all over the country, you know, bringing envelopes and messages to every mobster and every union leader in the world. Those same routes that I was doing two years earlier, now I'm bringing envelopes for a different reason, not knowing what it was about. And it was organizing the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And you ended up delivering a message to New Orleans. And in retrospect, you wonder if a gentleman that you passed, I think it was in the hallway as you were delivering this note to the guy who was then implicated in uh, one of the alternate theories of John F. Kennedy's assassination. You think you might have actually brushed shoulders with Lee Harvey Oswald, correct? Well, I, I know that I did because what I, I, when I got there, like any, any traveling, I had to go to the bathroom. And he says, somebody in there, wait a minute. And then a guy comes out, he opens brushes into me. I just looked at him, I paid no attention. I went in the bathroom, came back out, had my meeting with Marcellus, gave him the envelope that I brought down from Costello. And I said, what's the message for Mr. C? He said, tell him it's on. Two words, it's on. So now I leave there and go back up to New York. The next morning I meet Mr. C, and he said, what's the message? I said, it's on. And with that, he gives me a manila envelope filled with all kinds of documents and money, and he says, you're leaving the country at the end of the week. I said, okay, where am I going? He said, just go to the ship, the Independence. I signed you on as a merchant marine, as a hairdresser. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, what the hell is this about? <laughs> he said, but somebody's going to meet you in Barcelona, and then get, don't go back on the ship. I said, okay. Because that's what I've been doing all my life with this guy. Mm-hmm. Going to places that he tells you to. Going under the Verrazano Bridge that morning, they announced the president was shot. And I'm not putting two and two together yet. And then it was late at night that we found out while we were out to sea that the president actually was killed. And, uh, I mean, the whole ship was in, in mourning. And with that, the next morning... There was a telex paper printed on the ship, and there was Lee Harvey Oswald, and they said he was the one that shot him, and I can't believe that's the guy I bunked into. I was depressed for days. I really liked John, and nor did I ever want to have anybody think I was part of a conspiracy. I was just a messenger. And so you end up staying over in Europe for a while until Frank Costello calls you back to the States. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit now because you eventually get interested in acting specifically based on the movie adaptation of the Mario Puzo book, The Godfather. You got cast into The Godfather despite having no prior acting experience. Was what you did to get the mob and Hollywood to settle their differences to get that film made, landing yourself a role in the process, was that the shrewdest maneuvering of your life? One of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, I was 25 years of age. Understand, I'm living like a king. I got all the money I want. But my ego, it's as strong as it is now as it was then. I wanted to be in this movie. And I read, you know, I had somebody read me the book. And I knew I could play Michael, Sonny, or Carlo. And uh, they were having problems with the union and the mob in New York, specifically the Colombo family. And Joe Colombo was picketing the FBI building. And he's been called on the carpet downtown saying, you know, this is a secret organization. What the hell are you doing? And so with that, I used that opportunity to meet with the Paramount people and said I could straighten out your problems here with the unions and your locations. And uh, I'll bring you Joe Colombo. And they agreed to have the meeting. And the next day, they ironed out their differences. And they were ready to call the meeting. And I said, whoa, whoa, what about me? So typical Hollywood guys, although we'll give you a part. Don't worry about it. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, let me tell you something. Either I play Michael, Sonny, or Carlo, or this deal's off. And I had Joe standing there. I said, Joe, am I playing Carlo? He says, he's playing Carlo. And that was it. <laughs> Love it. And the cast, obviously, is uh, it was well-known back then, but it's a stuff of legend these days. There are too many people to count that believe this is the greatest movie of all time. You talked about your exchange with Marlon Brando regarding Marilyn Monroe, but that wasn't your first exchange with Marlon Brando at the table read. What happened the first time you and Marlon Brando met? Well, first of all, I was never on a rehearsal or a set. So I get a call sheet telling us what time and where to be. And at the bottom of the call sheet, it says, do not make eye contact with Marlon Brando or approach him. That's right. No problem. I thought about, they were worried about all these thespians, these young actors, because <laughs> he's like a god to them at the time. So we do the table read. and we Thank God they did it up in my friend's place up on 119th Street in New York in Harlem, East Harlem, where, uh, you know, Fat Tony Salerno had that joint, and he was the uh, head of the Genovese family. I used to go up there a lot because I did a lot of midnight loans up there. They had a gambling casino up there. So guys would call for 2000 3000 I'd run it up. So we had the, the rehearsal, and Francis Ford Coppola, his idea was to have a lot of Italian food served, and he asked the Italians to exaggerate all their mannerisms, their hand gestures, for the non-Italians to become Italians. Because Jimmy Kahn was Jewish, Marlon Brando was Polish. So we do the rehearsal, and it was just, you know, say hello, who you are, and just read the script, no acting. And yet the first break, Marlon Brando comes over to me. So I figure, I ain't in trouble, the guy's coming to me. So he says to me, you're a big TV actor. I said, no. He's got a big movie coming out. I said, no. He's really not on Broadway. I know everybody on Broadway. I said, you're right. He said, who'd you study with? I said, study what? And then he called Francis Coppola over. He said, Francis, this guy's playing Carlo. And Francis wasn't too happy about me playing me anyway, but they already told him he's done. You can't fire him. He said, I know. He said, but he's got to be a great actor. He marries my daughter, and that's the first time I'm realizing how important my character is. I never read the script. He marries my daughter. He sells my family out to the Barzinis. 
he gets my oldest son, Sonny, killed. <laughs> this guy's got to be good. And I'm saying to myself, this guy's trying to get me fired. Now, I just had a big party a couple of nights before, and I told my friends I'm going to do this movie. They were laughing at me. They said, get out of here. How are you going to do this? Now, I'm saying to myself, this guy's going to get me fired. I'll never be in the neighborhood again. They'll let me out of town. So I figured, you know, I don't know protocol. So I tell, I tell Francis, the director, I said, go over there a minute. I didn't know you could, couldn't dismiss the director. Then the other sacrilege I did, I put my arm around Brando. I said, come over here a minute. <laughs> and I walk him out of earshot because I didn't want him to be, you know, embarrassed. So as soon as nobody's around, I get him right face to face. I said, let me just tell you something, Mr. Brando. You screwed us up for me. Listen to what I'm telling you. You screwed us up. I'm going to suck on your heart. You understand this? I'm going to kill you right here. Why would you do this to me? And he stepped back, looking at me. He said, oh, you could do this part. That was very good. He thought I was acting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, it was obviously a very serious moment uh, at the time. But in retrospect, it's just one of those hilarious things that helped you continue moving forward with your life and just this ridiculous existence it goes on from there to where you're driving to the set every day with marlon brando he's helping you run through lines he's essentially you're getting an acting class from one of the best to ever do that you were friends with frank sinatra he helped you really learn how to sing as your lounge career was taking off i'm the only guy in the world that could say marlon brando is my acting teacher and frank sinatra was my singing teacher that's insane and i'll go one further too you could honestly make the claim even if you had had sex before that moment that Marilyn Monroe taught you to have sex as well. I got to include that as an accolade. I, I never thought of that. Absolutely. So considering all of that, as somebody who has accomplished as much as you have in your life, if you were to teach a master class to somebody to share your expertise, what would that be? I really don't know. I mean, what I would like to do, as I said, I, I want to motivate these kids. We all have the opportunities. Most of us don't take them. We don't believe in ourselves. So, I mean, my whole thing that I would teach anybody today is believe in yourself. I mean, believe in something else. I'm not saying any religion or God, even it's a monkey. You have to have somebody else in your life other than you that you believe in and can turn to. But to me, I just want, you know, it's perseverance and don't give up. That's the only lesson I could teach anybody. And I learned it early on, even just to walk, is to survive. But it's up to you. If you don't have the will and the desire you're not going to succeed. That's a great lesson there, sir. And you open your book with a story from your club in Vegas back in the late 80s where you had an unruly customer who had literally uh, cut open the woman that he was there with and ends up becoming a physical threat to you to the point where you have to pull out your gun and you end up killing this individual. Well, come to find out, this guy was an employee for Pablo Escobar. Yes, that let Pablo. Me, let me interject yes, something sir. first, though. I don't want your audience to think I just shot the guy. I went up to the table and gave him the opportunity to leave because his girlfriend needed you know, medical attention. That's my main concern. With that, I didn't know he still had the broken bottle in his hand. And he slipped, went to slit my throat, but I was agile enough to bounce back. And he slipped it all along my chin line, which is even crazier I don't know if you picked up on this, but uh, I waited six months for these shirts. I'm a, I'm a very meticulous dresser, mm-hmm. even now. 
I waited six months. The guy must have thought I was nuts. Because I said, look what you did to my shirt. I'm bleeding <laughs> all over it. And he's looking at me like, is this guy crazy? <laughs> I said, now get the f*** out of here. He said, no, man. So I, I shoot him between the eyes. I'm looking at a hole in his head for a couple of seconds, but I'm saying, wait a minute. And he, and he touches the hole like he got bit by a mosquito, only to find out, I asked the coroner, he said the only reason he didn't go down, he was so coked up, wow. his brain took a couple of seconds longer. But I'll tell you one thing, I learned one thing, I bought a, a, a bigger caliber gun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you come to find out that this guy was an employee for Pablo Escobar. Well, you he was uh, an underboss for Pablo Escobar. You receive a clear message from the Colombian drug cartel in your uh, heavily secured home in Vegas that not only lets you know that your life is in danger, but that of your daughter's life is also in danger. You end up going to John Gotti, a guy that you express in the book that you're not incredibly fond of, but as a way to try and uh, meet up with Pablo Escobar to explain your side of the story, because you understand that otherwise, considering just how ruthless he and his cartel were, that it was going to mean very bad things for you, and more importantly to you, it was going to mean bad things for your family as well. Uh, Gotti, being the scumbag that he is, sends you down to Colombia, trying to set you up to get you killed, and you... Oh, he thought I'd never come back. <laughs> you literally meet Pablo Escobar face-to-face. All these years later, 30 years later, what stands out to you about your interaction with Pablo Escobar? Well, the most important thing, again, as we said earlier, is my, my perseverance. I mean, I was... I didn't even know how long I was tortured. I knew it had to be a day or two. But then all of a sudden, as I come to, I see a guy not in the fatigues that these guys were who give me to beaten, And, and my, you know, my throat's still bandaged from his other guy slitting me up in my own throat and in, in my club. And the guy's standing there and he has the book in his hand, The Making of the Godfather. And the next thing I hear is, why don't you tell me you were Carlo? And the, the guy that you're talking about is Pablo Escobar, it's correct? Pablo Escobar. And I'm saying to myself, I mean, this is how crazy my life is. <laughs> and with this, they bring me up. They clean me up. I get some sleep. He got me medicine. And uh, I'm having dinner with Pablo Escobar. And I don't, I, you know, I don't trust the guy because we all know he's a maniac. So he says to me, and I tell him the story. It wasn't the story John Gotti told him. I don't even know what that story was. I told him I had nothing to do with this, you know. The guy, came, your guy, came into my club. He cut this woman up. I don't know who she was. I said, but she needed medical attention. And then he went after me, and I showed him my chin, and he knew none of this. And then he, you know, he apologized actually, which I can't believe. So I'm really sorry. I got the wrong message, and I let him know. I think you know, John told you what he wanted to because he didn't want me to back in New York. And then he said, you know, let's, you know, if I, if I could, do, can you do me a favor? I said, of course. But what am I going to tell the guy? No, I, I clean the house room. What do you want me to do, wash your car? <laughs> no, but <laughs> he says, I want to do the scene that you and Michael did at the end of the movie. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, this, is this guy a maniac or what? <laughs> so I said, okay. I said, you want me to write the lines? I said, no, no, I know the lines. <laughs> And now I'm doing the closing scene where Michael said, Carlo, you got to answer for Santini. 
And I'm saying, oh, no, this is how he's going to kill me. So we do the whole scene. And he hands me a ticket, an airline ticket, just like Michael did. But it was a legitimate ticket, but I still don't know that. Then they walk me out, and he has one of his vintage cars. Instead of having just Clemenza in the backseat, he has another guy in the backseat. And the guy that walked me out with him opens the front door, and I sit in the seat, and the guy's in the back said, hello, Carlo. And I figured, oh, f- they're going to kill me, man. Oh, my man. gosh. And they all bust out laughing. He's amigo, I love you. Have a good trip. <laughs> and that was it. I couldn't wait to get out of there. <laughs> That's a hell of a practical joke for even Pablo Escobar to pull I, off. I know. I know. I mean, it's crazy, man. But my life is crazy. I love it. Yeah, crazy life. As I mentioned earlier in this conversation, it's a gumpy in existence. I mean, you barely escaped Iran just before the overthrow of the government in the late 70s. Uh, You were around the Vatican when there was some blatant money laundering going on. And you've just been (laughs) been around all these crazy historical events and uh, all these crazy famous people as well. We just ran down. You learned how to sing from Frank, Frank Sinatra. You learned how to act from Brando. You learned how to have sex from Marilyn Monroe. But I'm curious, though, Johnny, do you have any regrets in life? If so, what? None. Are you kidding? I'm blessed. I'm 76 years of age. I got nine boys, two girls, nine grandsons. Imagine having 18 boys carrying your name. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for them. <laughs> yeah. They're going to say, you're a bore compared to your father. See you later. <laughs> no I get kidding. it all the time. My oldest son is 56. He hates me. <laughs> Why is that? Well, well look, what, what is he? You know, he's running a business for me in Italy. And he's got no life. They're boring, these kids. (laughs) Ah, I see. Okay, last thing, and this is much less serious than some of the other things that we're talking about, but I cracked up when I read this little detail. It was almost a a side note to the story that you were telling at the time. You had to knock one of Siegfried and Roy's tigers out, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, every Sunday, I still have it even in New York. I love big dining rooms, Mm -hmm. and I have Sunday sauce. So I used to invite everybody. I mean, everybody who was on stage in Vegas came to my house one time or another. So Siegfried and Roy, I love those guys. They, they were at, when I met them, they were at the Stardust Hotel just as a featured act. And then um, Steve Wynn built them their own showroom. But they came over one day with this beautiful um, white cub lion or tiger, whatever it was. And... Uh, they were having dinner, and they brought the lion so my kids could play with it and all the other kids that were in the house. And all of a sudden, the lion started like what a lion does when you see them in the cages, snoring and all that. One of the women had their period, and the lion reacted to it. Wow. And he goes in the air. Thank God I'm agile. I'm fourth degree, you know, Tai Chi Matsu. So... I'm right there, and I clocked the cat while it's in the air. And I hit him right, and he was knocked out. And Roy was crying hysterically. He thought I killed the cat. <laughs> Ironically, later, that's the cat that attacked him. How about that? He gave this cat PTSD, and years later, the, the cat <laughs> attacks his owner as a byproduct. Well, I'm, glad, 
I'm glad I wasn't in the, in the audience. You attacked me. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, Johnny, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to read about your life first and foremost, but also hear you talk about it as well. Your life as a guy who worked for the mob, as an actor, a singer as well. Of course, you're best known as Carlo in The Godfather and Part 2. And you just came out with this great new book, Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Johnny, thank you so much for the time today, man. Thank you. Anytime, man. I appreciate it.